helping the acquisition workforce maintain a decisive edge. This is the Defense Acquisition University Podcast. This is Defense Acquisition University Podcast. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm joined today by Stacy Cummings, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition. She's a part of the JADF, or Joint Acquisition Task Force, and the subject we want to speak about today is their work on the Coronavirus Task Force. Stacy, welcome. Thank you so much, Anthony, and hello to all of our podcast listeners. Now, when we hear Coronavirus Task Force, we're, of course, thinking about all those televised updates we were treated to throughout this period. The task force that we're concerned with is the DOD-level Coronavirus Task Force. And this leads me to my first question. What were you doing for the department before the coronavirus pandemic came upon us? Thank you for that question, Anthony. So before the coronavirus global pandemic and the national response, I was in the same position officially, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition, uh, working for the Honorable Kevin Fahey. And I led a team called Acquisition Enablers. And our job was to bring acquisition innovation to the Department of Defense to include completely transforming the DOD 5000 series of acquisition policy to implement the Adaptive Acquisition Framework. And I'm very proud to say that while I was on detail as the director of the Joint Acquisition Task Force, my outstanding team of acquisition professionals did actually get several policies signed out by both Ms. Lord as well as the Deputy Secretary implementing the Adaptive Acquisition Framework, introducing tailorability as well as flexibility into the defense acquisition system. So in other words, you really didn't have concerns for continuity. You had a team that you could rely on. They could continue forward with their important mission while this concern suddenly shifted for really the whole world. But at the DOD level, you found yourself concerned with this new thing that we were calling coronavirus and COVID and turning your attention toward that. So what changed for the DOD when the coronavirus pandemic was declared? So among many things that impacted the entirety of the nation was when the president declared a national emergency. That declaration uh, implemented a series of events across the interagency, meaning all of the departments, all of the executive branch departments across the federal government needed to step in and figure out what their roles were to respond to a national pandemic. DOD has very strong roles in responding to national emergencies under the Stafford Act, as well as other regulatory and statutory requirements. What was unique and what remains unique about this particular national emergency is that it is global in nature, and we have to respond as a whole of nation and a whole of government. And so in the past, the Department of Defense would get called upon in a regional or a local emergency to assist FEMA in their emergency response requirements from an acquisition perspective in a way that we have a lot of experience doing, and we're very good at it. What's different about this particular national emergency, again, being global in nature, is that it impacted 
our global supply chains. And when you think about managing global supply chains, understanding adaptive acquisition, flexible acquisition, contingency contracting, the one executive branch department you think about is the Department of Defense. And so what was so different about this particular national emergency that Ms. Lord, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, recognized immediately was that the DOD could play a role in responding to this emergency in a broader sense than we had previously done in other national emergencies or regional or local responses. So why was the Joint Acquisition Task Force created? So Ms. Lord recognized that while there were existing connections across the interagency to be able to procure on behalf of FEMA or procure on behalf of another agency, that we didn't want to limit the types of relationships, interactions, and assistance that we could provide to what we had done in the past. And so by creating the Joint Acquisition Task Force, Ms. Lord created a structure that allowed us to reach not just into our contracting capacity, but into our expertise across the range of acquisition expertise and skills. So the DOD has about 170,000 members of the acquisition workforce, and that acquisition workforce includes people who are experts in contracting, but also in research and engineering in logistics, supply chain management, distribution. And what Ms. Lord recognized was that if we could create a framework across the Department of Defense, we could tap into those unique skills in a way that we hadn't previously done. And it allowed her to personally reach out to the senior executives, senior acquisition executives across the services to ensure that we were getting the best, most qualified people to help volunteer, really volunteer, to participate in this national response. So she was just in an excellent position to bring together all these different disciplines that could work in a complementary way on this. What was the specific mission of the JADF? So the, the Joint Acquisition Task Force was put in place to be that single entry point into the Department of Defense acquisition system for our interagency partners. And really what that enabled us to do is to ensure that we were creating a single voice, a single view for the interagency into the DOD, because the departments that we were working with, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Health and Human Services, didn't really have a place to come if they needed to request assistance especially non-traditional advanced acquisition or unique program management skills. And so that was the role that Ms. Lord asked me to take on in partnership with the acquisition community at large. Now, it began with this vision and this mission. You know, the situation on the ground is ever-changing. Did you see an evolution occur as circumstances were changing? Absolutely. So when we first stood up the Joint Acquisition Task Force, the first thing I did was go over to, the, to FEMA, to the response center, and try and figure out how do we make sure that the right people know that we're here to help them, but not in a way that has us coming across as trying to take over their mission. I've actually worked in other departments. I spent six months at FEMA back in 2010 
doing a, a developmental assignment and uh, almost five years at the Department of Transportation. And so when I came to this particular mission set, I really wanted to come in a supporting role. And so what I immediately did was go over to FEMA, talk to senior leaders from FEMA as well as HHS, and figure out where can we be the most helpful at that moment. And really what we found is that there were not leaders attached to individual pain points yet. And those individual pain points were very, very focused on individual end items and their supply chain. And what we found is that because we were so reliant on foreign sources and because the lines of transportation were interrupted because we were in the middle of a global pandemic, that we needed to think short-term and long-term. And there were people who had already begun to think short-term and the niche that we came in to fill was to bring in subject matter experts on things like program management acquisition and supply chain and assign them to these product lines that we could see were going to be a problem from an availability perspective as well as an affordability perspective. So let me give you an example or a couple of examples. The product lines we, we immediately recognized as being problematic were ventilators, N95 respirators, surgical masks. So we ended up putting people who previous to this national emergency knew nothing about ventilators, but knew how to buy and support trucks and tanks, who knew nothing about N95 respirators, but knew all about deploying a new aircraft carrier. And so we were able to take the skill sets of the Department of Defense and apply them to a new mission set, but using those same skills that we had learned through the Defense Acquisition University, as well as years of experience as program managers or as logistician supply chain managers. So that is really where we began. But we really did evolve over time. And I would say we probably had multiple evolutions over the last six months. So we brought our best folks and we integrated them into the FEMA and the HHS teams, but we did so predominantly from a distance, so remotely, because we were in the middle of a pandemic and most people were teleworking. We were able to bring that sort of back office support to the FEMA and HHS front office response. We ended up doing a lot of things that were just at the right time. We brought just the right skills and just the right tool set. So, for example, we helped vet contractors who were bidding to provide products for the nation to make sure that they were valid contractors, to make sure that they really had the supplies that they were saying that they were bidding against an RFP. And we did the research that the contracting team at FEMA or HHS didn't have the time or the capacity to be able to do themselves. And so we took that on to make sure that as a nation and as a federal government, we were responding appropriately. It sounds like you are really coming in and complementing and supporting these other entities and agencies without eclipsing their responsibility. So there might be some delicacy involved in navigating all of that, providing the support while respecting their mission. You also, there was a lot in there that you said, it sounds like there were pain points that you knew at the moment, but there were pain points that couldn't yet be predicted. They were yet to be revealed. And so it sounds like that's where your evolution came from, just being adaptive as things unfolded. Absolutely. 
So as we started to look into the initial uh, product lines that we immediately saw, and, and you, you, you saw it in the media, everybody recognized that ventilators and N95 respirators were of short supply. So we started to do research across other areas of medical resources, as well as, importantly, the supply chains that support the end items. And that's just a skill set that, in general, people outside the Department of Defense haven't been trained how to do. And so we immediately started seeking investments because we knew that we had the Defense Production Act, Title III, which is a tool set that the DOD has in order to invest in industrial capacity to support national security. But we also knew that in the CARES Act, the Congress had provided appropriations and authorizations to Health and Human Services to invest in industrial supply chains for medical resources. And we saw a very complementary activity in taking the skill sets of the Department of Defense, the authorization and appropriation at HHS, and bringing those things together, enabling DOD to provide a service to HHS to help them meet their requirements much faster than they would have been able to do on their own because they simply didn't have the contracting capacity that the DOD has, nor did they really have that, as I mentioned before, that understanding of how supply chains work together in order to deliver a final end product. And so the evolution from kind of bringing ourselves in as subject matter experts really evolved into us being the interagency's arm to deliver industrial expansion agreements, contracts, and other types of uh, arrangements with the industrial base in order to expand domestic capacity in the short to midterm to support our national response to this global pandemic. Would it be correct to say you created more rapid acquisition pathways than could have occurred without your help? Absolutely. So the expertise that resides both within the Air Force, because that's where the executive agent is for the Defense Production Act Title III. So they have some very unique experiences in contracting and creating technical agreements with companies in order to expand or to sustain their industrial capacity. The Army's Joint Program Executive Office for ChemBio also has amazing capacity and capability, as well as existing relationships with the medical industrial base. And so we were able to leverage the capacity and capability and unique skill sets of both the Army and the Air Force to bring forward adaptive and contingency type contracting experience to deliver results to the nation much quicker than the interagency could have done without our help. It's a really remarkable story. And back a few beats when you were describing how you really were applying traditional skill sets that might have been tailored for certain weapon systems or tanks or something else and applying it to health services. So it's a very remarkable story of adaptation and how you were able to step in to support something that is not your traditional product or output. Is that a fair way to say it? Absolutely. I think that that's a a fair way to put it. The outstanding training and experience that we get in the Department of Defense is absolutely applicable to other functional areas. 
And this national emergency gave people who, you know, we all became employees of the Department of Defense because we wanted to serve. And it gave DOD acquisition professionals an opportunity to serve in a different way, in a way that would be impactful to our neighbors and our family members and ourselves. And we got just the most amazing volunteers. And interestingly enough, almost every single one of them, I still have not met again, because we were in this global pandemic, national uh, lockdown type of environment, and we were able to leverage technology and we were able to leverage our skills and just the way we operate on a daily basis in the Department of Defense, whether we work in DC or Texas or Ohio or California, supporting the warfighter globally around the world, we have that also we also have that unique skill set of being able to provide that support even when we can't see the customer right in front of us in the same office. And so I think that what happened over the last six months is pretty miraculous. And I'm really proud of the team that we put together. And that team ebbed and flowed. There are people that that started with me who went back to their jobs. And there are people who started with me who are still part of the team. But everybody's contribution for as short or long as it was, again, I think was miraculous. Yes, really transformative to the way we work. All the remote arrangements, I'm still feeling it at my agency. But the incredible thing is that the work goes on and things that we were maybe doing a little of, standard telework, to suddenly do that 100% and fulfill the mission was surprising. So with this mission, with all these challenges and the constraints of COVID, the technical constraints we just talked about, having remote teams, how did you bring together your team? So the the first thing I did was go to my boss and say, I need help and got a great, great front office team. So we pulled people who already were within the office of the undersecretary or the office of the assistant secretary and really sort of created this front office team of military, civilian, and contractors who would help me to create structure, documentation, processes. And this was a piece of advice that I got from one of the senior acquisition executives when I was talking to each of them about how we were going to organize was to make sure we had right up front good processes and templates because we needed to be able to move very, very quickly. And what you don't want is people having to discover on the fly, you know, what information do I need to capture? How do I need to communicate? And so having that key like front office, chief of staff, deputy, that was absolutely key. The second thing we did was we went out to the service acquisition executives as well as fourth estate agencies that uh, have relevant experience around acquisition and health and asked for volunteers. And it was, and I think I said it before, I used the word miraculous. It was amazing. The quality and quantity of outstanding acquisition professionals who really wanted to be a part of this. That is one of the benefits of, of one, this being such a unique and, and interesting and impactful task force with support from the very top of the Department of Defense, but also that altruism of wanting to help, again, our neighbors and our family members and knowing that we were going to have a significant impact 
on our nation's ability to recover. So it sounds like you had amazing top support with this kind of a mission being what it is. And then the folks who came out of the woodwork to volunteer is another amazing story behind the story. What stood out for you, though, about the acquisition workforce? So I talked a little bit about the great education and experience that being an acquisition professional in the Department of Defense gives you. And I also talked about that feeling of altruism. We all we all work here because we serve. One of the things that I thought was just amazing about the team we put together is their ability to think critically. So when presented with a, a an uncertain uh, outcome that we're trying to achieve, when presented with a new problem, something that we hadn't encountered before, the ability for a leader to lead their team, bring a team together get information from various sources and bring it back and make a recommendation in an area that that individual probably didn't know anything about a week prior. And then to see those recommendations, those those ideas turn into outcomes like investments in N95 respirator, industrial expansion in the United States, things like that. That is what I think I take away from this experience about our workforce. We are asking our program managers to think critically and to tailor the way they acquire weapon systems in the Department of Defense. And the fact that we were able to, on this scale, at this speed, bring together people who could immediately think critically, come up with great ideas and implement them in an uncertain environment makes me feel so optimistic about the future and about how we are collectively bringing innovation to the defense acquisition system now and in the future. It really is stunning. And like you said, that critical thinking where all the tools, all the problem solving was now applied to something really foreign to the traditional output. It is incredible. So how did the JADF leverage acquisition expertise to work on medical resources? So I talked a little bit about how we brought together different functional areas of expertise from across the acquisition enterprise. Some of the unique things that I think we brought to this particular response were um, some IT tools that had been used for a different purpose. For example, the the Air Force brought a technology, a portal that they had been using called AFWorks and enabled us to rebrand it very, very quickly and turn it into an industry portal. They were able to take the commercial solutions opening, which is a tool that the Congress gave to the Department of Defense in the National Defense Authorization Act, and we were able to use that tool, which is a DOD tool, to meet the needs of the interagency and the nation to very rapidly put a competition into a space of vendors, contractors, suppliers who don't normally work with the Department of Defense. So uh, really, really unique how we were able to take the skill sets, the tools, the innovation that the Air Force, the Army, the Fourth Estate has sort of brought together for our own DOD purposes and restructure them very quickly to meet the needs of the interagency. So again, you were finding a number of ways to come up with rapid acquisition pathways. 
And in this case, with unconventional vendors who were of the kind that you hadn't worked with before. Now, just in operating the team, again, this is a situation where everyone is remote. What was that like for you operating remotely during the pandemic? So I guess I would say that in the beginning, I wasn't 100% sure how we were going to be able to create a team in such a non-traditional way. I will tell you that I've always been a big supporter of telework, but I've always thought of telework as being something you do intermittently when you have demands that require you to be able to be at home or physical restraint that keeps you tied to the house for some reason for a short period of time. But I'll tell you, I am definitely sold that we can be just as effective when we are working in a non-traditional environment as we can be in a traditional environment with all of the, of course, caveats around the Department of Defense and security classifications. But I do hope that we will be looking at remote work and telework as a way to make the department as a whole more effective, as well as as a cost-saving opportunity, and really just to improve quality of life, especially in an area uh, I live in D.C., very close to the Pentagon, but a lot of people spend a lot of time in their cars commuting. I think that it's great that we've been able to demonstrate and prove how effective we can be. And certainly the team that came together to support the JADF was and is a highly effective team, even in that remote environment. Yes, it's been remarkable. And uh, speaking as another person who lives in the Beltway area, just taking a significant percentage of burden off those roads can be a real quality of life game changer. And I'm sure this is going to be true in many other metro areas around the nation. And just what we're doing right now is another example of how, yes, it may be nicer to plan and produce and edit, do that type of thing as a team with some of that in person. But even this we're managing to do remotely and we are intending to execute it well. And I think we will. So as you said, this was an interagency group. What kind of models did you have for this type of interagency group? So I mentioned earlier that I have worked in different executive branch departments, and I've had experience working across departments between the Department of Transportation, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, Coast Guard, and, and I've been parts of teams that were interagency before. And the emergency response element of our nation is absolutely interagency in nature. And so things like hurricane responses and earthquake responses and oil spill responses all require multiple agencies to come together. As I mentioned earlier, the thing that's really unique about this one is that it is truly a national emergency in response to a global pandemic. And so the skill sets that we brought are unique in that the interagency mechanisms that previously existed didn't really include the defense acquisition system. And so the sort of framework that we established, we established it based on understanding the Stafford Act and understanding that regional, local, and national response construct. But I don't think we actually had what I would call a playbook where we knew, here's how you stand up a joint acquisition task force. 
Now, we have lots of examples of where we've created interagency organizations, groups that stand up either temporarily or permanently. And so those were great models. And a lot of the people on the team had operated in those joint environments. But we didn't actually have a playbook, uh, which is why we're writing one. And this podcast is actually one tool in the toolbox from a playbook perspective to get down in writing, in presentations, on the web, and then here in audio, a way for people in the future or people now to be able to take what we've done and not have to relearn and not have to reinvent the wheel. And so I appreciate uh, DAU supporting us to be able to get this now while we're living it recorded and that it will help us to document our processes so that if, and hopefully it doesn't, but if there is another national response that needs to be stood up like this, we are prepared and we have all of our lessons learned well-documented across multiple media. Yes, and that's the key word. Even though this is an audio type of format, this is a document of sorts. And what's unique about it, what's special is that it captures this call and response of conversation that also brings into play the feeling of this time and to to hear in the voice of someone who has been reacting to a crisis, I think it adds a dimension that you're not going to get from other media. So I hope this does have enduring value, what we're doing right now. So as you were forming this group, what kind of policies and structures did you utilize? So we immediately looked to our acquisition policies, to our Office of General Counsel, to the Comptroller, because we really wanted to understand what was in the realm of the possible. So we knew that the CARES Act, which had been passed by the Congress in March, provided the DOD with some resources in order to assist in the response. But really the preponderance of those resources, those appropriated and authorized funds, were across the interagency with FEMA from a uh, Stafford Act perspective and Health and Human Services. And so we really sought to understand what are the different authorities that are available to us. So when we offered assistance to our brethren in other agencies that we were able to also explain the how, what are the mechanisms by which we can help. And so in addition to the CARES Act, some of the authorities that were very key and critical in our ability to participate were the Defense Production Act, which we've heard a lot about the Defense Production Act over the last several months. And, and I know I and my team have definitely become experts in the Defense Production Act and, and how it can be used. We also took advantage of the Economy Act. So the Economy Act allows for one federal agency or department to request assistance from another federal agency or department. And it allowed HHS to use their resources and their authorities and ask us to apply assisted acquisition to meet their authorities using their resources. And so those were really the key authorities in addition to those sort of overarching regulatory statutory structures that were available to us. We also had some local ones like Ms. Lord signed a memo that established the Joint Acquisition Task Force. We shared that with the Congress. So we were very transparent about what we were doing, what our authorities were from Ms. Lord to me and from me to the rest of the acquisition workforce. And so we took advantage of those as well as working within the construct of the DOD's 
COVID task force as a line of effort reporting directly to the deputy secretary. And so we had all of that structure that we could take advantage of while we were innovating within the line of effort that we were executing under. You did have tools. You had authorities like the Defense Production Act. What were you lacking? Were there things that you did not have? So when we first stood up, we really didn't have the appropriate interagency agreements in place to immediately start using them. And that's really the biggest lesson learned that we want to take forward out of this national emergency. And that is that we, DOD, need to have existing interagency agreements with the departments, the executive branch departments that would seek to have acquisition assistance from the DOD. We need to keep them active and we need to have active relationships. So we don't want the second day of an emergency to be the first time we're meeting our acquisition counterparts. And so one of the big lessons learned out of the JADF, it's not just learned, it's being implemented. So our lesson implemented is the establishment of a permanent office called the Defense Assisted Acquisition Cell, which is going to be incorporated into the Joint Rapid Acquisition Cell under the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. And so that'll be a very a small office with a few people who will keep active and continuously refresh the po- local policies and procedures, as well as those interagency agreements, and most importantly, those relationships, so that we establish trust all the time and on a regular basis, as opposed to trying to establish trust the second day of an emergency. This will ensure continuity when the next crisis happens. Exactly. Instead of inventing that wheel and that relationship. Now, I have to imagine another challenge was just the reporting and accountability. How did the department communicate with Congress from an acquisition perspective throughout this emergency? We absolutely, uh, all the way from Miss Lord down, knew that we really needed to be as transparent as possible and responsive to our congressional stakeholders just as much as we needed to be to our interagency stakeholders. And so what we found is that the best way to communicate on a regular basis was to do so on a regular recurring call, as opposed to having our request for information come in through formal mechanisms and responding through formal mechanisms. A lot of times in our regular work, responding through a request for information is fine. When you're in a national emergency and things are changing so quickly, we really needed a way to rapidly keep our professional staff members as well as members informed. And so over the last six months, we established a regular drumbeat of phone calls so that we could talk to our professional staff members about what was going on from a workforce perspective, how we were implementing the CARES Act authorization and appropriation that the Congress provided to us, and how we were using other authorities and how they might be able to help us be more effective in responding to this national pandemic. We shared our lessons learned. And then we also had several opportunities to have hearings. Ms. Lord, as well as Mr. Fahey, had an opportunity to testify a couple of times. And so those are opportunities for us to be very transparent and communicate. And the wonderful thing about being able to communicate immediately on the spot 
is that we were able to answer any questions, alleviate any concerns, and share lessons learned that may be impactful to future National Defense Authorization Acts or budgets in a way that, again, was very transparent and open. Yes, it seems like another example of just how with the times and with tools like telephonic communication, which we have had forever, but which we're using along with tools like Zoom and other things, just that immediate and continuous conversation has to keep things moving. It must keep things moving in a better way. Absolutely. And taking advantage of that technology. And if you've, if you've seen any of the, the actual hearings, Congress is taking advantage of this technology as well. And I was able to participate with Ms. Lord in a hearing where people are all over the country participating in governance of our nation. And it's amazing how quickly we all were able to respond across the executive as well as the legislative branch. So just reflecting back, big picture, what did the JADF accomplish? It's funny you ask that particular question because throughout the last six months, we have not had a lot of time to stop and reflect. And when you're in the moment, it's hard to see how much you're really accomplishing. As we are building our playbook and as we spoke about earlier, creating some multimedia opportunities for us to look back and reflect on lessons learned. It also gives us the opportunity to reflect on all the amazing things that we really did accomplish. So I and my team, the entirety of the JADF can be very proud of the assistance that we provided to FEMA and HHS very early on in the emergency, being able to understand the ventilator delivery schedule and how the contracts would be managed and bringing the expertise of our contract administration on the back end of a contract award, which enabled us as a nation to not only create and deliver enough ventilators for ourselves, but also to be able to export those to other countries. So amazing work there that we can all be proud of. And I could look across all of the product lines and give you a similar example. One of the great things uh, that we also accomplished was bringing together from a technology and an expertise perspective, we brought together people who wanted to share their 3D models of personal protective equipment and share it widely without any compensation for their intellectual property, put it out there for others to evaluate and once approved for others to copy and to use their 3D printers or to be able to sew on their sewing machines This was just American ingenuity at work, and we leveraged advanced manufacturing, but also the brainpower of Americans and then the work power of Americans for people to solve their own PPE problems so that they weren't tapping into the supply chain that our frontline medical workers needed. So that is another accomplishment that we're just so very proud of. That sounds like a very open source approach to doing it rather than proprietary and Mm -hmm. closed. And that amounted to more people manufacturing more things. Exactly. And uh, we had companies who had never manufactured ventilators, who had never manufactured face shields, getting into the market, doing so either temporarily or permanently, depending on what the need was. So that that sort of bringing together of, of brain power and work power of America is something that we're really, really proud of. We also ended up creating this structure that became the arm of the interagency 
to expand domestic production. So we all of the investments in N95 respirator production, in the fibers and the source material necessary to make the materials for surgical masks for N95 respirators, test kits, test supplies. When we made each of those individual investments at the time, we were very focused on that individual action. We've been able to go look at it holistically as the interagency's domestic production expansion arm, we really were able to make these individual investments to solve individual problems. And we were getting results and we were getting results quickly. But it wasn't until we were able to look back holistically at the investments that we made and truly understand how we were closing that gap between national supply and national demand. And so when I look forward to the end of this calendar year, we will have brought the brain power, the investigation, the supply chain analysis, and the contracting program management skill set to the interagency to solve the N95 respirator demand problem in the United States with domestic supply. So N95 respirators, we will be producing at a rate that matches demand in American companies with American workers by the turn of the year. So January of 2021, that is just something that we are amazingly proud of. The same thing with swabs to support testing, the same thing with test kits and testing supplies, the same thing with surgical masks, we have been able to make strategic investments and take the limited resources that are available, resources being people, money, and time, and bring the most strategic investments together to solve those very, very critical medical supply problems that were identified during this global pandemic Again, going back to that idea of being over-reliant on foreign sources and the lines of transportation being cut so that we needed to rely on American workers and American companies from a national economic and national security perspective to meet those needs. And those are the things that we in the JADF, we in the Department of Defense, the Defense Acquisition System, was able to bring to the interagency to solve those problems and amazingly proud of those accomplishments. It's an amazing American success story when you view it from that perspective of, you know, we talk about buying American. In this case, you've been creating industry with companies that converted their operations to support this crisis. And suddenly we're the ventilator capital of the world as a manufacturer. And with the PPE type of manufacturing, it is remarkable. And it's an American success story that has grown out of this. In fact... To date, and here we are recording this in uh, September of 2020, six months into the life of the Joint Acquisition Task Force. And when I look across all of the acquisitions, all of the assisted acquisition, all of the investments that we've made, we've made over $3.5 billion of awards on behalf of the interagency and the national response to this global pandemic across procuring items for the strategic national stockpile, procuring medical resources that go directly to states 
localities, hospitals, and frontline medical workers, as well as investing in onshoring or increasing the domestic production of those items that I was talking about earlier, where we previously had a gap between domestic demand and domestic supply. We're closing that gap. And in some key areas, we've closed that gap. That's remarkable. And as you said, that's just a snapshot in time, those numbers. You will see that continue to move and increase. Now, I imagine the journey was choppy. You had so many moving parts that there had to be rough spots. So I want to ask you, just in the spirit of lessons learned, what and how will the department learn from this pandemic episode? Well, we're certainly, again, implementing some lessons learned in the creation of a permanent office and the creation of a playbook so that we can not have to relearn any of the, or all of the lessons that we did about how to leverage the Economy Act, making sure we have interagency agreements and relationships in place. When I think about the early stages of trying to figure out what is our mission and how do we bring people together, I have a hard time looking back and um, remembering how stressful and hard it was then now because we're so focused on those accomplishments that we just talked about. I know that many people, me included, spent a lot of nights and weekends sort of responding to uncertainty and trying to figure out exactly what are the highest priorities and how do we get after them. I think the big thing for me is just open communication, really leveraging the expertise, not just across the department, but across the interagency. And I think that as long as we continue to foster those relationships, and I'm going to go back to the first time you meet the person you're either going to support or be supported by, can't be day two of the emergency. So how do we make sure that we continue to keep foster those relationships and value them and take the time when we're not in an emergency to think about the who, the how, the why, and really understand the mechanisms that are available to us so we can quickly implement them? So, Stacey, you've spoken about many investments that were made that created this industrial base, bringing a lot of manufacturing back to America. So when we consider the supply chain and how they moved offshore at one time, how do we now ensure that we keep them here as domestic manufacturers that we can count on going forward? So, Anthony, I think that really is the key question from a supply chain perspective and industrial-based perspective is there is a reason that these manufacturing bases and supply chains moved offshore. And in the time leading up to the pandemic, we prioritized that sort of low cost being the most important thing to us. We didn't think about the impact of relying on foreign sources for medical resources but in the Department of Defense, we understand that having a strong domestic industrial base is critical to national security. What this pandemic has taught us is that economic and national security are very tightly linked, and the place where they intersect is our industrial base. And so from my perspective, what we need to do is look at this from a whole of government. The Department of Defense ourselves cannot solve this problem 
of reliance on foreign sources for medical resources. We can take the federal demand signal. So the DOD and the VA, we order medical resources to support our own health requirements. But that is a very, very small percent of the amount of buying that goes on in the nation. It's about 4% is what our estimate is. And so we need to look at all of the aspects of policy and structure here in the United States that drives our costs to be higher and drives manufacturing to move offshore. And so looking at things like automation, looking at regulations, tax structure, tariffs, we need a whole of government approach really to look at how do we incentivize the buyers to buy American and how do we incentivize manufacturers to invest in driving down their costs, bringing in manufacturing innovation, and really bringing us back to that world leader in medical resources, knowing that it's part of our national and economic security to do so. So what a great question, Anthony. It's a whole of government approach to sustaining that industrial base, incentives, taking away the disincentives. So it really creates that climate of economic incentive to do business in America, which is so linked to our national security, as you described. Absolutely. Our guest has been Stacy Cummings, again, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition. Stacy, if I may take the liberty, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Anthony. This has been great. I really appreciate and thank you to the Defense Acquisition University. Thank you again. Thank you for listening. For more resources, visit the Defense Acquisition University online at dau.edu. Thank you.